a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about. Politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Deborah Craddock. Today on Deborah Craddock, we are going to meet Harold Noriega. Harold is a renowned real estate agent in Laguna Beach, California, a husband, a father, an athlete, and an activist. Let's get to know how Harold came to be the man sitting with us today. How you doing, Harold? I'm good, thank you. So you live in Laguna Beach for a long time now, but where are you originally from? So I was born just east of Los Angeles in a small, primarily Hispanic town called Santa Fe Springs. Because it's uh, at the crossroads of the 605 and 5 freeways. And so is your family Hispanic? Yes. Well, my father is um, Basque. My mother is Hispanic. And they're both first-generation Americans. And who did you grow up with? I grew up with my brother. I have a brother who's five years older. And my parents. And in and, and a neighborhood of a bunch of kids like me. And... Was your home life a fun life, or was it an idyllic life? You know, my life was a little different from the standpoint. I have parents that both worked all the time. So um, my dad worked two and three jobs, and my mom worked one and two jobs. Their goal was that my brother and I would go to school and get out of this environment. To go to college. I grew up where a lot of kids just stayed where they were and did the same thing over and over. And I think there's also a lot of prejudice, a lot of racial discrimination. Did you was, ever suffer any of that? Oh, I mean, it was it was blatant. And you were just, uh, you were conditioned that this is what you do. You stay here. You do this. I remember in uh, high school, I think I was a sophomore, and I was at lunch, and I came in late, and I was like in an AP English or history class, and I got sent to the office for being late from lunch, right? I was tardy. So I was getting tardy a lot. I was getting in trouble, and so I'm trying to figure out. Were you being out. rebellious? I was or? being rebellious. So I was trying, Harold was trying to figure out who Harold was, right? So um, I get in there. Um, one of the um, counselors just comes and talks to me and just says, like, why are you even in this class? He goes, you're taking a seat for somebody who's serious and wants to go to college. He goes, you should be taking an auto shop class or a wood shop class because that's where you're going to be. That's what you really need to do. I mean, they're steering you to stay in this basically because I'm Mexican. Wow. You know, and basically, if you're white, you know, they're going to go to college. 
I was so pissed when I heard that. And I think what it really was, I was hurt that it was real, coming from adults and authority figures. But at that point, I said, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to show you. And was interestingly enough, Debbie, um, years later, when I was out of college, or I think I was just out of college and I was waiting tables, uh, I I worked in the restaurants through college and just after, that teacher came in, particularly at the restaurant I was in, to have (laughs) dinner. And I, and I did everything I could to bite my tongue and not give him a piece of my mind. In your home, um, were politics ever discussed or did politics play a role at all? Nothing was ever really discussed about politics. Um, but I do remember this distinctly. I, I was young. Uh, I came home one day. I think it was from like uh, grade school or whatever. And my mom's crying. And... I never saw my mom really cry. I mean, my parents didn't cry. They didn't show a lot of emotion. So, um, and I'm asking her, like, Mom, why are you crying? Why are you crying? She just points to the TV, and it was when President Kennedy was shot. And that was the the extent of our politics. But I asked why she's that third president. And, um, you know, um, she was, my mom, I think, was a pretty hardcore Democrat, you know, but she's also, she also had her degree of um, being very conservative as well. So that was about the extent of the politics. Did you feel a closeness with them? Or- no, I didn't feel a closeness. Um, um, I didn't understand why um, I didn't see them. It wasn't until later that uh, I realized through uh, therapy that um, it's how my parents showed love by sacrificing and working to be able to provide for us. My brother went to, he went away young uh, to school and I was alone more. I didn't see him very often. Um, He went to become a Catholic priest. So he went to seminary at high school, like a private high school, in order to go to the seminary, which is college. And he went through all that. So we'd go see him on weekends and, or, uh, or holidays. So I had a brother I didn't grow up with, basically. My dad worked all the time. You know, there's never any, like, baseball games or high school events. And my mom worked, or she was there to a certain degree. So I had my friends. And I grew up where they wanted me to go to a Catholic grade school. And all my friends went to public school. So as I started getting older and older from like, you know, kindergarten to first grade to second grade. Um, as you start maturing, the divide starts happening. It was challenging. It yeah, was lonely challenge. and it was challenging. And that must have been a strain for your parents, though, to pay for private school. I mean, I mean that's more expensive than I mean, public they just, school. <laughs> they, just, they just said, this is what you're going to do. Yeah. And it, they wanted you to follow the Catholic faith. They, they wanted me to follow Catholic faith. They wanted me to be an altar boy. I tried. Couldn't do it. Um, Did your brother stay in the priesthood? He went all the way, I call it, I say it this way, he went all the way to the finals to be a priest. And right before he get what it's called ordained, and he decided not to. He, he told me eventually he couldn't be celibate. And so how did you find your faith? Because I know that you are a devout Christian, mm-hmm. and you grew up in this Catholic household. And how does that, how do you segue into the faith that you have today? That's a good question. I was brought up a very strong Catholic. I couldn't relate 
to a lot of things about Catholicism. I feel that I'm a, a very introspective person. I will open up with people if they really want to open up and get real about things. So I'll express my emotions and how I feel. Um, and if I think someone is not being genuine, then I don't necessarily go any farther. Um, I'm not, I, don't, I'm not, I don't try to be the typical closed-up male. You've know, got to be tough and strong and don't show your, your emotions. Was your father a machismo? Was yeah. He kind of yeah, he was, he, was, he was just more, I think I don't say was machismo. I think he was just more intelligent. He was very bright, but... I just think, you know, we're socialized as men not to show our feelings and like, you know, like suck it up. You know, you got to, we do have responsibilities. I've experienced this recently. Like, how do I survive my son's death? Right. You, and I realize, and Harold, we are going to talk about that's, the that's tragic fun. loss that your family sustained this last year. That's, I want to cool. tell you how heartbroken I am for your family. Thank you. And for you, your beautiful wife, your daughter. Yeah. It's something no parent should ever have to no. face. Okay. We've known Harold for a long time. We were neighbors and friends for years. I just want to say that we would observe your family so close, Thank you. so involved with your children. Um, it's just, it's a tragedy. And we're going to get to that once we get through how you right. came to be the man you are here with us today. Yeah. Well, so my, the question about my faith, um, I struggle with Catholicism because there's so much tradition and dogma that I felt something was missing. Like, it's not supposed to be this way. Like, what is going into a, a confessional and saying to a, to a guy sitting over there who really doesn't want to be there hearing my sins and then gives me, like, 20 Hail Marys to say? What, and that's going to make me okay to go to heaven and be like, I'm, a, I'm a good with God? I go, it just, it didn't feel personal to me. So I had this girlfriend going into my senior year that was a Christian and she took me to this place by this 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 church um, by Disneyland called Melody Land, and it was kind of a, a Baptist type Christian revival. And I went there. And it Is was that a, considered a mega church? It was that. This was a mega church. Okay. Yeah, this was a mega church. Um, I think there's probably like you know a couple thousand people there, and you know you do the singing and the bands. And I can relate to the bands because I grew up in music, and I'm like I like this. It's connecting. And then the pastor was talking about what they're trying to, what, they're, what they believe is, is that to have a personal relationship with God, that you're not going to earn your way to heaven. It was, it was being like when you pray, you're talking to God. And if you really open up your heart and your soul, God will speak to you and he'll show you like basically what, you know, what's in store for your life. He'll, if you're open to being led, you'll be led. There'll be signs and you'll, you'll know innately what you're supposed to do. And it connected with me because it was personal. So do you think it's just interpretive then, or it's how you feel you need to communicate with God? It's more personal. It's yes. not It's not within these confines of no. the Hail Marys or no. the confessional. Or, how, or you got to go to church on Sunday. Right. You, know, you have a, a relationship with God no matter where you are. No matter where you are. And you do, like anything else, you do want to be able to share it with other people and being communal is important, but it's not, it's, it's not mandatory. Because then you get to these questions, these hypotheticals like, well, what about the tribe that lives in Africa has never been to a church, doesn't know anything about Jesus, anything about God, did they just go to hell? It's like, no. 
I mean, you could look around. The animals know that there's a God. So this fills to you, possibly, I'm assuming, a void that you're not having between your parents, that maybe you're not having with your relationships, and you... Is that what it does for it's you? Like, that, that, that's, you're, you're naming it right on. It it's, was. It just it's, it, it, it provided it, me with direction and more and like and also the affirmation of like the moral compass, what's right, right and wrong, um, you know, some of the things espouse like I can understand why being a servant is important uh, as opposed to being me centered, being other people centered. You know, and you can look around the world and you see why certain things are you know, off or not I say good. religion used properly is a beautiful thing. It is. Does religion speak to your political perspective today or how you look at the greater world? I think my relationship with God is really about everything. It affects everything in my life. Um, because I've been through a number of different circumstances in my life where it was so challenging. There were survival circumstances that if it wasn't for my faith in God and my, and my belief, about, my belief about God, I don't think I would have survived. Okay. I just don't think I would be here. There's things we just don't have control over, and I really do believe God hears my prayers. I really do. Where do you fall politically? I think I fall politically straddling right over the middle. Okay. Is that because of social issues that you stay a little left and financial issues that you stay a little, monetary issues to yeah, the right? Yeah, I'll, I'll be point blank. They're all fucking horrible. Right. Both sides. Follow the money. It's all self-centered and it's all about the money. The right, the left, not saying every politician is bad, Debbie. There are some good people on both sides. Someone... Talked, uh, I listened to this one former, I think he was a former DEA head, talk to the government recently about like the border and fentanyl and stuff. And I know we'll get to this later yes, on. Yes, we will. And not, not But he said something that I think resonated with me that it's about everything. It's not a red issue. And it's not a blue issue. It's a red, white, and blue issue. Well, and we have a lot of that, like homeless, like veterans, like, I mean, like uh, health care. I mean, There's a lot of things that are just, it's so political. And then when you look, peel back, unpack, peel off the layers, it's like, who's making the money on that that's screwing somebody else? And everybody is involved. When did you become the guy you are right now in front of me today? At which point in your life did you become this herald? Wow. I think it happened for me when I was in college and I got the opportunity to play collegiate volleyball because someone believed in me. I, 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 I really wanted to play a sport in college. And um, I, I just fell into volleyball. I, and everything just happened for the right reason. You know, I decided to take an advanced volleyball class because I thought I was always a pretty good athlete. I don't need the beginner and this and that. Well, then all the guys on the team were in that class because we had an easy grade. I befriended one of the players who, like me, he was um, he he worked really hard. And he goes, "You want to get good? You can work out with me." We resonated. He helped me, taught me. I was all in. I was consumed by it. And you just felt and passionately, I, and, madly and, and in I, love with I was, volleyball. I was fortunate. Yeah, I was passionate about it, and uh, it resonated. 
And it taught me so much about giving and um, being positive and working hard and being disciplined and, um, and being challenged and overcoming adversity. And, and like, you don't understand winning until you lose. Right. And, and the coach, um, a couple of the players, and they were so instrumental in that that I think that's where it changed my life. Because everything that's ever happened to me. That's what you said. In my life has been from volleyball. You had mentioned that to me. Everything. Every door has opened. People because looked of at volleyball. me for some reason and you know and just reached out to me. But it's been the introductions and everything from that moment has been from volleyball. Who was the most influential person growing up? It's Coach Cram, Mike Cram. Just a good guy, good heart. He was he was the guy that was the most influential. I've told him a number of times. He doesn't believe it, but he really was because it's just the you know. He, he just believed. And with that power of when someone believes in you, um, I just felt like it, it was the thing I think I wanted from my dad. Right. Because he, he wasn't there. But I learned later on he loved me more than anything else in that sacrifice of working to be able to provide you an opportunity. That was his way of showing love. And is that where you got this drive and this work ethic, watching your parents work yeah. so hard. I get that from my dad. And then you went in to your field and you worked so hard. You're one of the top realtors in the county. You've sold to date over a um, billion dollars in real estate. Yeah. Um, you were in the top 100 best realtors. You were listed in Wall Street Journal, Real Trends, as one of the top 100 real estate teams in California. Wow, you're doing your homework. Well, thank you. I tried. <laughs> How did volleyball somehow segue into real estate? Here I am in Emerald Bay. And then um, uh, another gentleman in Emerald Bay who was developing homes asked me if I wanted to be involved. And um, I got involved doing that, which then led to selling real estate. And there I am again, you know, on the volleyball court with people talking about real estate. And now you are just... A guy who's who's moving into real estate, and you meet your wife? So, let's see. Our office was in the Irvine Spectrum, and at that time, there was a Wahoo fish taco out there, and we would always go to lunch. And we'd be at lunch at Wahoo fish taco, and I'd see this really gorgeous blonde walk in, and i go, wow, man, I gotta, I gotta meet this gal. And I'm single, and I'm, and I'm dating a lot of different people. But I'm like, wow, I really want to meet this gal. So I meet her, but she's seeing somebody. And so, like, damn, you know, that gal's hot. I want to Makes go out her, with her more desirable, right? Yeah, I want to go out with her, you know? What I got to do? So I kept sending her cookies, you know, after I leave. And then she kept my card. And I just said, finally, you know, I've seen her throughout the time. It's like, hey, look, if you ever break up, you know, just give me a call. I'd love to go out with you. And it's like, what girl ever calls a guy? He never calls guys. So she calls. She calls the office. And her nickname was a cookie girl. I used to send her these cookies. And um, I, I, she calls and, you know, and also all the guys hurtle around my desk. It's the cookie girl. <laughs> this gal's calling me. And um, she kind of lets me know, so how's um, the, the guy you're seeing? She goes, oh, well, we broke up. I go, oh, you broke up. Got it. Well, great gal like you. I'm sure you'll find a really good guy. Thanks for calling, you know. It's good to hear from you. <laughs> and these guys, I hang up. These guys are looking at me go, what did you do? And I go, 
dude, I just blew her off. I go, I'll give her a call back in a couple of weeks. <laughs> and one of my close buddies at the time says, Harold, can I just talk to you for a second? He goes, you know those gals you date? You blow those gals off. He goes, that gal? She's a keeper. You've been seeing her for like the last year. He goes, call her back. I go, I, I just hung up. I'm not going to call her. He goes, I'll call her in a couple of weeks. She'll be gone. He goes, call her up. So here I am like <laughs> two minutes later dialing her up. Go, oh, hi. You know, and I say the stupidest things now because I'm, I'm nervous. I go, so you're available. And she's like, yeah. And he goes, um, so I guess you're like back on the market. I was like, what a <laughs> dumbass thing to say. She goes, yeah. And I go, so would Charming. you like to like go on a, this is what he says, what if you go on like on a date date sometime? It's like a date date. And you know, like a date date, like, like a real date. She goes, sure. She goes, let me give you a call back in a couple of weeks. So oh, she now blew she's me off, right? And <laughs> I waited. It was the worst two weeks of my life because I thought, oh, I blew it. I'm never going to see her. I went back to Wahoo. She wasn't there. It's like she's going to be with some other guy. So we go on our first date. I'm sweating in my palm. I don't sweat. I, I'm, I'm stuttering. I can't even know what to say. I knew that this was the right person for me. We fall quickly in love and, and boom. There we are. We're together. And how long after you meet do you get married? Oh, God, I knew you were going to ask that. So three months later, we're pregnant. Oh, wow. After we met, after we like got together. And I just knew like, this is the gal I want to be with. And we got married um, July 1st. We wake up and say, I think this is a good day to get married. You know, what do you think? And I mean, it was a struggle for me. I just, I, I had been married before. Oh, I, you I was divorced, no kids. And I didn't, I didn't want to make that. I didn't want to make a mistake, but I knew in my heart this was the right person. I'm immature, okay? Right. I mean, I'm totally immature. I didn't grow up until I was 40. I began growing up at 40 years old, like responsibility. Every, up till then, it's everything I wanted to do. Right. It's all about me. So Parker's born July 27th, 27 days later. And what is it, five years later, you have your son, Cooper? Yeah, we, um, we tried to have another child quickly. And because we got, I mean, it was like, boom, we're pregnant, right? Like, this is going to, this is going to work. Two years after that, we go to Italy to get pregnant, like kind of have a honeymoon. We go to Italy, we have a great time. We get pregnant, we have a miscarriage. Oh. And Debbie, we thought we were the only people that ever had a miscarriage. I mean, we, I didn't know. Devastating, She didn't right? know. I mean, it was, it was brutal. We find that almost everybody's had a miscarriage or maybe multiple miscarriages. Mm -hmm. You know, we're really not alone. So, but it took a while. And then it took a while to get pregnant. We did, we did, we like, we couldn't get pregnant. So like, go, I think going into that fourth year or whatever, just said, you know what, you know, we're done. It's not going to happen. Let's just like, let's just, it's Enjoy it. Fire. Getting too old. Boom. We're pregnant with Cooper. <laughs> so it was like, and then you have your boy. Yeah. And let's talk about your son, Cooper Noriega. Tell me a little bit about Cooper. First of all, he's a big kid. He was a big baby. He is, he's an active kid, you know? Yeah, rambunctious. Yeah, he's active. Was always happy, you know? And um, always doing things. Like, he's a kid that's, you know, building things, doing things. He, I'll, I'll say one thing about Coop that... Um, I wish I had. That kid was so athletic, he could pick any sport and be really good at it. Me, I'm a product of hard work. I have to do something a million times, repetitions, to get it down. 
But Parker had the, the mental, the, like the sports IQ and the drive and the motivation. She's always the organizer. She's always the leader. She, she's, she gets shit done. That's what she's known at in her business. And, wow. and people love her. So Coop, he was there to have a good time. And yet he could just easily walk in and just do it. What was it that he was most passionate about? Yeah. He, he, liked, he liked being an individual. And he was an individual. And oftentimes he would get criticized or ostracized by your peers. But at the end of the day, he still did what he wanted to do, dressed the way he wanted to dress. And that's okay. Oh, I You know, as long as you're happy. I mean, we grow up. I don't want to be like my parents. I'm not going to work all this and never see my kids do anything. And I saw everything my kids did. I was at every event. That's right. I was going to say you were the opposite of what you described your parents. But I learned how to work hard and still work hard enough to be able to to support, to achieve my goals, and to have time. Because time was a priority. So I learned how to work differently. I think you know, especially today, like I feel, that time is the most precious asset we have. Yeah, your time and your health. And that happiness is not easy to achieve for everyone. And I know like you, I'm only as happy as my least happy kid, even till this day. You know, you have the choices you make over your own life and your own decisions, but then you have those loved ones that are close to you, you know, your, your spouse, your kids, your family. And you have no choices over a lot of that because they have their own choices, right? Then you have the rest of the world that just throws stuff at you. And you have to deal with that. So, you know, there's only so much that we can control. And there's only so much that I believe that isn't controlled by God. So kind of what we talked about earlier, it's like how I'm able to be positioned with all that is what's critical for my survival and my mental health. And, I, and, it's, and it's not easy all the time. So let's talk more about Cooper, because I know you're very passionate about the foundation that you established, Coop's Fund. We want the listeners to know, you know, what's going on in your life. Cooper Noriega passed away in June of 2022. He was only 19, and we are going to discuss how that occurred, if it's not too much pain for you. That's okay. Do you feel that that was an accidental overdose, or do you think it was a suicide? That's a good question, Debbie. Um, You know, our son, for those of you who don't know out there, was a um, very well-known social media influencer. He was also um, a model. Um, He was also sponsored by a number of brands, and he was, you know, I guess, marketing or being paid for those brands. And uh, um, several million followers through the social media from YouTube, TikTok, uh, Instagram. And um, when Cooper passed away, um, you know, the coroner did their investigation. And and let me take one layer back. Everybody in the world contacted us. You know, uh, TMZ, People, Entertainment Tonight, um, Young Hollywood, all these platforms from internet platforms to TV platforms. I have people sending me stuff from all around the world where they see the news about his passing. That's just, 
you know, I guess the following was so great that it's, you, you, we got it from England, we got it from um, Europe, uh, Australia, from um, Japan. So we waited for the coroner to finish up their investigation. And that report wasn't completed until December 2022. So it takes about six months for toxicology? Or, or, or longer. Part of it is there was also a criminal investigation involved going on concurrently. So when we finally got the, the final report, the report in a nutshell said, Coop had taken what was the equivalent of one Xanax, but it was a counterfeit Xanax, and it was laced with a lethal dose of fentanyl. Oh, he was self-medicating. His, his drug of choice was Xanax, and he took one Xanax that he thought was okay, and it had a lethal dose of fentanyl, and he died quickly. I'm so sorry. This whole experience has made us look at, like, did we think he was suicidal? We knew he wasn't suicidal. And, um, and talking to the, the people that he spoke to on, the, on his very last day, kind of retracing everything what happened, is that basically he thought he was taking something that was clean, and it wasn't, and that's happening too much. That's part of one of the things we're looking at doing is getting a lot of this reclassified. Today, they're still calling these overdoses, but this is not an overdose. No. So an overdose would be if you sat there and like, I took 15 Percocets or something, right? I mean, actually, let's say it's like 100. There's people that are taking as much as 50 a day, you know? So, I mean, like somebody who's intentionally trying to like, I'm taking too much. Right. So it was deemed an accidental overdose because he didn't realize what he was taking. Right. But the, but the fact that it was resulting in a death, it should be a homicide. And so that's when one of the things that we're working with. So I don't understand how drug dealers want to kill their clients. I don't get it. That's a, that's a good question, Debbie. I'm asked that all the time. I'm asked that question almost every time. The um, counterfeit Percocets and opioids, Percocet, Vicodins, all that. The counterfeit Xanaxes, Klonopins, uh, all that stuff. The counterfeit Adderall, the counterfeit gummies, mm -hmm. the counterfeit vape cartridges that you can get cheaper. Delta 8? That Delta-8 is a real intense synthetic weed, but my understanding is there is counterfeit of that. Is it just easier for them to get? I mean, so what happens is the cartels make this counterfeit stuff because it's cheaper to get a hold of. It's cheaper to make, cheaper to buy, easier to get a hold of because you don't need a prescription. So it's all counterfeit. It's, it's, it's you know, illegal. So this is what was happening with the kids that were taking Oxycontin, their prescription, say they got injured at a football. And if they run out. And they run out. And they can't and get they prescriptions. something, they go to the See, one of the things stores. that got employed with the issue with the opioid crisis is the government started employing the um, prescription database. So before it used to be, you can just go to how many prescriptions, many drugstores you go from here to Washington, you can get as many prescriptions, but now there's a national database, so you're limited to what you can prescribe. When you run out and you're an addict, then you go get it. Kids are getting because it's cheaper, but they're also thinking it could be clean. So that world of non-prescriptive counterfeit, you're asking why would the cartel put something deadly in there? Right. As, as opposed to just making a counterfeit? Their clients. Yeah, why, why would you do that? Okay. It's the cost of doing business. Profit margin. It's all about money. It's all about addicting new people. 
And the statistic is, if you look at everything that's counterfeit, 60 to 70% of that has a lethal dose of fentanyl. So is fentanyl something that will kill you just on its own, or does it need to be a combination of fentanyl and something else? It'll kill you on its own. Fentanyl's been around for a long time. Fentanyl has a good medical purpose. It's primarily used in two areas. One, it's a super pain medication, typically reserved for like end-of-life cancer patients. Like if you had something like a pancreatic cancer and you're about to pass and it's unbearable, it's uh, 50 times, 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Wow. Than heroin. Yeah. But it's produced, you know, medically for that use. And it's also used that almost, I think most of the um, anesthesiologists, when they're putting you under, so when you're put to sleep, and this kind of tells you what happens, when you're put to sleep, it lowers all of your body um, activity, your breathing, everything. Heart rate. Heart rate. It's kind of like, I give the example, like putting to sleep a computer. So like if you're going to log off your computer, you go, I'm going to shut down. Your computer just doesn't shut. The screen goes blank, and then you hear it slowly, the, the uh, hard drive goes off, and it goes... And that's shutting it down. Shutting too. it down. So what they do is they bring you down to a stage of twilight, of sleep, like going towards death. And then they keep you alive with uh, IVs and also breathing so that you can be operated on with no pain. And then they bring you out, right? And then eventually you have to have some kind of pain, depending on the surgery. So when this happens, where it's going into this mode, you were talking about how fentanyl... So when you have like a, like, like something like what Cooper took, like a Xanax laced with a lethal dose of fentanyl, which would be, I'd say if we had a little salt shaker here, it might be the equivalent of about eight or nine grains of salt, maybe five to six grains, not very much. And figuring you look at a, at a pill, yeah. so it's all mixed in with that. What happens is you start getting really loopy and you start like starting to go and start losing consciousness you're like the computer that's being shut down everything starts to shut down you're breathing your heart all that and then you're just dying and then it gets to the point where it shuts off quickly so think of it like that you're being put to sleep your body's going to sleep all of your functions are shutting down and then you can only be shut down for so long right and then you have you know brain death and all that. I want to know more about Cooper because this is so important and there are so many people out there struggling with addiction, accidentally overdosing just because they want to party. I understand just through, you know, research that Cooper struggled with some form of addiction since he was nine years old. He said that he struggled when he was nine. And when he comes back to that, nine years old was the first age that he tried weed. Was it with the older kids? Was it he just wanted to party? Was he just a guy who wanted to try things? He got introduced to it from his friends. And then older they, kids are around the same age? Same age group. It's such a young age. It is a young age. It really is. Yeah. Were you aware? I mean, because it, these kids can hide things so well. Like, we weren't aware of it for not for maybe two or three years. And how did you discover what was going on? And did you just think it was a rite of passage? Or what we, did you think? We, we, we caught... Um, some paraphernalia mm -hmm. with some weed. It was prevalent in uh, middle school. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, that's that age where kids begin experimenting with alcohol, drugs, and, and sex. sex. Yeah. We're going to try to just get our kids through it. Right. 
we all went through this and we all survived. A lot, a lot of my friends didn't survive. Wrong place, wrong time. You know, back then it was like, you drank too much, got behind a wheel. Or, so lucky you made it to the next spot. You know, but they, they got, they got, we got through it. Got so through it. part of it was just got to get our kids through it, right? And then, you know, then they, they age make, out of it, and they, yeah, they, they get a little bit more maturity and they make better decisions. For sure, everybody struggles with mental health. Everybody, to some degree, you can look back in your life. I can look back in mine. I can look back at not just that I had issues because my parents worked all the time. I'm not talking about. No one has perfect physical health. No one has perfect mental health. But there's this whole stigma about mental health. And it's like Why you can't talk that? about it. Why? Because Why? it's like it's like you're weak or something's wrong with you. You're not like, what? I don't know. Like you're not tough enough or you're, something's wrong with you. Like my kids aren't like that, you know? We all have some form in our lives of self-medicating. Yes. I think that kids, you know, do want to try things. They're just... They're just curious. There's also, Maybe peer, they are there's also peer pressure. Peer pressure, or they are self-medicating, or they want to fit in, and then they find that they like the way they feel, and it takes away some of their inhibitions. Is it just a human tendency to reach for something? I think it is, and I think in simplest forms, Debbie, what happens is that, first of all, I don't think kids, when I say the maturity, they don't have the life experiences to be able to make mature decisions or understand the full scope of consequences they're invincible yeah and they're just they're just immature and young they're kids and they're supposed to be kids mm -hmm. that's our job to help get them through to that next level but people go through experiences like kids what was what we're talking about here and i found three things that happen one is they don't like how it feels whatever it is being ostracized being bullied being ridiculed I'm not pretty enough, I don't fit in. When kids experience these, like these traumas, these issues, I think they do reach for self-medication because then they don't, want, they don't want to feel that way. They don't want to feel the depression or the anxiety or the bad feelings. Have so we coddled them? I, I think one of the things we've done, Debbie, is a, as a society, we've taught everybody that if you don't feel good about something, you take something. Right. Let me prescribe something for you. You'll feel better. You like to fly? give you a Xanax, you right. know, you're struggling with this, let me give you an antidepressant, you know, if I can't figure out what's working, we're going to give you a pain pill. So kids will self-medicate so you don't feel a certain way. Then there's those that experiment with that, and I don't know how they're wired, but they like it. They like something. Right. And we see alcoholism, we see drug addiction, we see shopping, we see people that get on that uh, addiction to like plastic surgery, right. there's eating disorders, there's self-harm, there's all kinds of things, right? But then there is when it gets so bad, they don't want to feel this anymore. I want it to go away. That's where suicide comes in. Right. So in very simplest forms, it's like, that's kind of how people are, think. But what is really at the bottom of all this, and I see that through the Coops Advice Discord, is that kids want to be heard. They want to be able to talk to somebody. And it's not always going to be our parents. Right. Was social media at all, do you think that was a negative thing in Cooper's life or a positive thing? Because he had so much fanfare and adulation and, I mean, he had so much attention. They must, 
I don't think social media was harmful to him. I think it was a, a way of him to actually figure out who he was. And I think it was positive, but I could see where it can be very negative impact on kids growing up because everything there is too quick without having to earn something. It's immediate gratification. It is living in a fantasy world of like, it, to be cool, you gotta look like this or you gotta have these things. So it's kind of like television on steroids and they spend too much time on it right. where they're not out getting balance. Too much time on anything is, is an imbalance. Our lives need to be balanced, like balanced food, balanced um, sleep, balanced exercise, balanced education, balanced family time. Before he became this TikTok sensation, what was going on in Coop's life? What was, what was if he was having emotional lows, what, what do you think was driving that? Or what were his concerns, worries, or stresses? Um, Cooper, at a young age, he was shorter. He got bullied for being short, got picked on. He also got picked on for being half Mexican. I, I couldn't believe it. So in the school system, we sent Coop to um, public school, which we liked. And he, he was diagnosed early with ADHD. Oh. And it's hard for him to sit still in a class. Uh, he could be disruptive. Um, we later found out when he was in high school that he's extremely bright and he was bored. We moved him to St. Catharines, which was here, which was here in Laguna, and that school is no longer in existence. He got ridiculed by, by a particular teacher in class. Stuff like, are you that stupid you can't sit there? And then he also got bullied there for being short and for being half Mexican. And you know what? It, uh, later on that we found out with him with some, within a family therapy, we didn't know that that occurred. And it broke my heart and because it, it broke his. He struggled with about who he was. Because when you have authority figures versus your peers telling you this, you know, it hurts you as a kid. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's scar tissue. So he, he grew to be like 5'9", five, 5'10", five, and a good-looking boy. But he struggled who he was. When he went back to Laguna Beach High School, he was getting a lot of uh, internet fame, and we got picked on for that. He just said, I don't want to be in Laguna Beach anymore. He found a best friend up in L.A. who was an up-and-coming social media influencer who now has, looks to have a, like a pretty good uh, recording and entertainment career, and they became best friends. He found other kids like himself. He found his people. You know what? He was happy. Um. And he was thriving in that, and he had good friends. Um, our daughter moved up there to be a fashion stylist. It's interestingly enough, annoying little brother, right? They, be, they were best friends. They actually lived together at one time. His friends became her friends, her friends. They're, they're in the same friend group now. And then uh, he had his girlfriend's sab. I mean, he was building a really good life. So he was doing well when this happened, which leads yeah. me to then assume that it wasn't an effort to kill himself. No, it was no effort to kill himself. No. No. It was an accident. Um, he did choose to take something, and he was, he was trying to be careful, um, but that's how dangerous of an environment we are all living in. I, have, I know people of my peers that are doing non-prescription drugs. That's They're doing bumps of coke. I, I gave this example to a kid who is, um, I think he's about seven, eight months out of recovery now. 
you know, sober. I said, this is what you're dealing with. And his thing was Coke. He couldn't, he was on Adderall, uh, got addicted to Adderall, which is really hard to get off of, by the way. He, he ran through his prescriptions, so he went to cocaine. So I just said, let me give you an example. Let's go get a pizza. I'll pay you to go get it. I'll pay for the pizza, I'll pay you to go get it. Make, I'll give you 20 bucks to go get the pizza. He goes, would you do it? Sure, no problem. Would you do it knowing that you have a 60 to 70% chance of dying in a fatal car crash? It's good. That's, those are the chances to go get the pizza. And you go, fuck no. And I go, that's the percentages of when you're taking something like Coke or the, 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 uh, the counterfeit pills. 60 to 70% of them are laced with a lethal dose of fentanyl. So we got thrown into the world of fentanyl with Cooper's passing. We realized about what mental health got him to the point of that and where kids need to talk, who they're talking to, who they're not talking to, how many are really struggling with a lot of things. And that's kind of the world that I believe God has directed Treva and I to be in. Well, do you feel, though, that the pharmaceutical companies or the doctors are getting kickbacks or something? Deb, I, one part of this, when we talk about like um, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, we've seen what's happened with um, Oxycontin. And yes, in the pharmaceutical, few of them have paid you know, billions, you know, although it's not really affected them um, financially. With like what Coop experience, I think what happens is his gateway was Adderall. He was prescribed Adderall. We gave him Adderall or some degree of Adderall. And he became, instead of this kid who was like, you know, uh, smiling and happy and communicative, he became catatonic, zombie-like, wouldn't talk, like uh, just kind of like empty, no appetite, losing weight and got really thin mm. and couldn't sleep. Later on, when he was at J. Sarah High School, there was a teacher that recognized that he was really bright and he was also bored. So he would do well in a class, he'd get things done and he'd do well, but then he'd be fidgeting because everybody else is still doing stuff. So she would go, Coop, I need you to take a couple things from me to the office, but I want you to go the long way, okay? And so what she would make him do is basically exercise, a natural stimulant from endorphins and adrenaline and come back in the class and he'd be settled. Wow, that was a good teacher. Versus taking something. Society is teaching us to consume something to help us feel better, really with the symptoms, not the root cause. Right. Now that doesn't happen so much medically. This is about mental health. We gotta get to what it is that's driving us to self-medicate. We gotta talk about it. Right. We gotta communicate. So before Cooper passed, I, I think it was like five days before he passed, he posted a TikTok and he started, I don't know if you know the Discord platform. Discord platform is like a chat, chat platform. It's, it's an internet platform called Discord. It started with gamers. So they, I saw one TikTok where he said that he's going to create right. a mental health platform. Right. And I did see a TikTok and I was a little alarmed where he said, anyone else going to die Young as fuck. There's a number of things that went on so in his life at that time that he was struggling about circumstances with people, you know, girlfriend, uh, best friend, things of that sort. And he wasn't a partier. Like he didn't do drugs to party or to yeah. stuff like that or drink to party. But 
he would self-medicate not to feel a certain way. So let's talk about what your mission is going forward. So here's how this all started. Coop passed away. His friends, his management team came to our house. They wanted to start a foundation because they were aware and they told us that Coop had reached out and started a couple of things right before he passed. One of them was he started the Coop's Advice Discord. And the other one was he reached out to a platform, a nonprofit organization called End Overdose, and he wanted to support them. Because this is the group that trains and provides, uh, trains you in Narcan training okay. and how to administer and how to look for signs of an overdose. And then you can get free Narcan. And so, um, and the third thing, he wanted to ultimately create a treatment center that would really help kids after they've gone through detox. But he did the, the, the Coops Advice Discord. Mm. His thing was, I want to create a place that's a safe place for kids to be able to discuss issues about mental health or addiction. Or they can just open up and chat. So he really had things he was looking forward to doing. I mean, that thing, he started that, and it was about maybe 100 subscribers when we were told about it. Today, it's about 230,000 plus. Wow. And they're constantly on this thing. These, you, look, you listen to these kids talk, and it breaks your heart. Because what you see, our kids are going, you know, I'm, uh, this is a, I don't want to live today. I'm going to kill myself today. I'm going to use today. But then you hear other kids jumping in and saying, here, I'm here for you. I'm, you, know, you don't have to do this. And the support and the love. They're all talking and listening to each other and helping each other. I think he's saving lives. You know, we've, in all of this, in all of this, from the moment he started rising as a social media personality and up to today, I've never heard or read one negative thing about Cooper. Not one person that said he was this or that or not one thing. Everybody liked that kid. Everybody loved him. He was always more concerned about everybody else than himself. And he had so much influence on other people changing their lives. His whole friend group, and these are kids that are models, you know. One of his, um, his best friend tours with Machine Gun Kelly. So, I mean, they're, they're notable artists today. The others are, you know, still their brand sponsors, all that. They were all, to some degree, doing some drugs. They were all smoking and vaping. Pretty much all of them today, almost all of them, have eliminated all of that. Wow. And there, one or two may still vape or smoke, but most of them just said, you know, they just, they just, the, the overall influence has been to be a, a healthier choice. And God bless Cooper Noriega. Thank you. Let's move to um, how you are active in trying to get Narcan into the hands of is it teachers, police officers? What what is the what is the goal there? So, Coop reached out to this group called End Overdose, and they're endoverdose.net. They're uh, out of Pasadena, and um, Theo, uh, the young man that started this nonprofit organization, he's an LA City firefighter and paramedic. He is a recovering addict, heroin addict, a survivor. His girlfriend passed away from an overdose when he was younger, and this led him to start this. And they do a training and certification program to how to determine, to help you determine if someone's having an, uh, an opioid overdose. And 
then how to administer Narcan and to provide it for free. So we said we want to go support what they're doing. We kind of learn what they're doing. We went to go meet with them. And I remember Treve and I walk in there. Here's this big 6'4 guy that's just ripped. He's got a t-shirt on. He's got tats everywhere. But then we realize he's the biggest teddy bear, the nicest guy. He's just, you know, a younger kid. He's an LA City firefighter and paramedic. When he's working, they're doing anywhere from a dozen to two dozen runs a night, and half of them are huge gratitude. Half of them are fentanyl overdoses to the fire department. Right? Can we just pause for a yeah. second and say thank you with yeah. all the fires that we've had and what those Everything. men put themselves in such tremendous harm's way every day that they get called. Yeah, and it's not just the things that they're fighting. Talk about heroics. They're, they're, they're in harm's way from being shot at and stuff, especially where he's at up in MacArthur Park area. His focus is. Someone takes a drug and they're overdosing and it's from either opioids or fentanyl, all which is an opioid. And he goes, they're going to die and they don't need to die. I'm here to help them from not dying. And that's basically it. So Narcan only is effective with opioids. Yes. So how it works, Deb, is that you have these receptors in your body. Think of it like a, it's a receptor and an opioid gets in your body because you consume it and it latches onto the receptor and the receptor starts sucking in the opioid and it starts shutting down your body. It starts doing what the opioid is supposed to do and it shuts it down. Instead of, and then when you throw fentanyl, which is a super synthetic, it shuts you down to the point of death. So if you took a lot of like prescription Percocets, you could get really sick and throw up and pass out and you might die, but you have to take a lot of them. Right. Okay. When you take something with fentanyl, it's death. So like it's lethal death. It's, it's death. How long? Not very long. Like minutes. Wow. So what happens is with Narcan, you can either inject it like into a muscle or you can a nasal spray in your nose. And that medicine basically goes to the opioid that's on the receptor and kicks it off and it plants it over there and it plants there. So it kicks it off and it plants there and the opioids get you know, basically all kicked off these receptors and you come back out of that state of being like passed out. And what they tell me is it's not pleasant. Like you wake up and it's like, oh, wow. but you're alive. Right. And then usually they're either giving you um, CPR and possibly some mouth to mouth, but you can tell with the signs of someone's overdosing. And if you get Narcan quickly enough, they come back. But before you administer, call 911 because they need to go to the hospital. Right. You know, it doesn't mean like, oh, I got brought back to life like a, like, a, like a defibrillator. Clear. Your heart's beating again. No, no. The opioids, once the Narcan wears off, there could be a chance that the opioids in your system Take go back again. and you go back and die again. Mm -hmm. So you need to get to the hospital so they can monitor you. And I think what they do is they put a Narcan drip in your system until the opioids disperse from you. Because right. there's long-acting opioids and they're short-acting, mm -hmm. but fentanyl is like real short-acting and very dangerous. It's not meant for like normal consumption. So the idea is if you train enough people and if you have it and if you see it, you can be able to save somebody. Otherwise, like a lot of people are dying waiting for paramedics to get there because it's that prevalent. Wow. So what is your mission then to get it in the hands of teachers, of police officers? Our mission today has evolved. So we have the one lane is we want to continue to support 
Theo's group because they're training schools. They're training um, um, uh, at parties. Like there's a lot of uh, concert events, rave parties, um, concerts, things of that sort. They're training all those people and providing it because that's where people are going to party. Right. You know, and then there's the colleges. Right. So they're doing that. We've, we'd like to now be part of the organizations that can have to be in every school and every teacher and every minister trained and have free Narcan every school from K through college in California. As well as parents. Yes. Parents are probably the ones that need the most education. We were clueless. Of course, I was clueless until know. I had this conversation with you. We, we didn't I mean, know. I had heard of Narcan. I keep forgetting to mention this. Here's the best part about it. Let's say you're, you know, at a party and some you think somebody overdosed, and you go through the steps to see whether or not, like, you know, are they are they breathing slower? Are their pupils dilated? You can rub your knuckles on their sternum, which is very painful if I rub really hard. And if they're not waking up, good chance it could be an overdose. Now, you don't know if it's got fentanyl or opioid, but good chance with the statistics today, 60 to 70 percent probably does. So maybe they're just drunk and just super passed out. And you administer Narcan, nothing happens, has no negative effect. So no harm, no foul. It's like a blessing. So like, okay, why wouldn't you, if you weren't sure, you do it. We call 911 first because you need those people to come. Somebody's in that Bad right, shape. but you don't always have time to wait. Like, I carry Narcan in my car. I know I'm going to have to administer this. I'm going to be at a mall, a movie, uh, some party, um, at the beach, at a volleyball tournament. I mean, it's so prevalent, Debbie, that I, it's like I'm going to carry it. What I found out is you can't carry it. You can't take it to Mexico. Oh. It's illegal. I guess it's bad for business in Mexico. I guess so. I guess so. The cartel looks at it because fentanyl is so highly addictive that there's more addicts coming up. That's the cost of doing business. It's a terrible So it's addictive position. if it's not a lethal dose, but ultimately you probably have to step up the dose to get the high because things become... How, how can you trust what you're taking? <sighs> you think this is made in a pharmacy? I mean, a, some type of um, pharmaceutical manufacturing plant? There's no controlled environment. This is this is counterfeit drug making cartel, you know, cheap ship it, you know, and sell it and who gives a shit what happens after that. Well, thank you so much right? for being on this mission yeah. to save people so that what happened to Cooper doesn't happen to anyone well, else. We're trying to that's one aspect and we're trying to educate kids and parents and um, and also continue to support those kids that, are, that need to talk. They need to be open. I've met one dad in nine months, one dad who's lost, a, who's lost a child to fentanyl who has been willing to talk. Only one? One. Yeah. Dads don't want to talk. Yeah. I mean, men don't want to talk. And this guy, and we spoke again on yesterday about we need a time, like let's carve some time to really talk. He lost two boys in the same night. Two sons. You think I have a bad? It feels neither party can deal with this drug infusion that comes from, that's constantly I coming across. I think we can. Let me clarify something that I learned recently. <clears throat> and it's evident to what we talked earlier about how the media 
diskews everything for its own political purpose. So there's this whole thing about the border. We can all agree we don't want bad people coming to this country that are going to harm us, whether it's terrorism, whether it's crime, you know, we don't want them, okay? But there are people that are coming here to better their life. You can come in through the front door, you come in through the back door. I can understand the back door sometimes, um, but I ideally would like them to come through the front door. And I then, agree. And then and, and if you're coming through the back door, we don't need to screw your life up and take your kids from you and say it has to be a certain way. We can make all that work, okay? It's but here's the clarification that I didn't know and where the media had skewed it for an agenda. So it's like, when you talk about, like, well, Trump was securing the border, which, okay, I, we saw he was securing the border, and Biden's not securing the border. Okay, he's letting drugs pop through. It leads one to believe that the majority of drugs are coming through those open areas or over the fence or under the wall and tunnels or those areas that are not at the border. That's not the truth. I thought it was. It's like secure the border to keep those guys from coming in because they're not coming in through the checkpoints. 96 plus percent of the drugs coming into our country are coming through what we call the ports, the ports of entry. Oh. 96 plus percent are coming through like Tijuana and wherever the other ports of entry are. We do need to secure our ports better. But we're overwhelmed, understaffed, not enough money. I think there needs to be a greater focus on it. I think what's going to happen is, like COVID, it gets to be such an epidemic that eventually the voice is going to be loud enough to get something done. Well, I hope so, Harold. And I just want to say I honor your time. Yes. I honor your story. Thank you. And I really appreciate you being here speaking Thanks. to me today. Thank you, Deb. You've always been an awesome man. and um, uh, You've just always been a very good friend. And thank you so much. You're so much. genuine. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I don't know how else to be. <laughs> so thank you. And we will, you know, do what we can, if we can, support your organization. And if you want to share with the listeners how they can get involved. Yes, yeah, so you can uh, reach out to us at, it's Coop's Advice dot org so c-o-o-p-s advice.org um, you can reach out to me directly through there you can reach out to me directly through social media instagram or tiktok or twitter i'm known as coops dad feel free to reach out to me if you are someone who is struggling with a loved one with mental health or addiction concerns or if you want to know more about who we are who we're supporting, what our mission is, and also the affiliate programs that we're supporting. If we can just help one kid, one child, and maybe it helps save one, mission accomplished. If we can do two, great. Three, no, Amazing. well, hey, we'll take the smallest win. And we're seeing that happen. And so we are taking every day, day by day. So I encourage you all to, if you can, get involved in your communities, encourage people around you to get involved. This is truly an epidemic and no one should die because they got fentanyl. Thank you so much, everyone. And thank you for being here, Harold. Thanks, Deb. <laughs>
This episode of Democratic was hosted by me, Deborah Drucker. It was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. Our amazing music was well, performed was by Amy Nelson American and Kathy girl. Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Democratic, check out Democratic.com and our Instagram at Democratic. That's D E B O R A H Cratic. Like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so let's talk about it.